Today's episode of Wild World is sponsored by Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. Visit expeditions.com to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore with Lindblad Expeditions. Water. It's the stuff that makes life possible. We humans can't live without water, and other species need it too. But water isn't evenly distributed around the world. There are places where it's plentiful, but in many parts of the world, there simply isn't enough for all the people and wildlife who need it. But there are some places where water seems to be scarce, and yet it's there, hidden beneath the surface. And ironically, water not only sustains life, it can also preserve the remains of living things after they die, providing a window to the past. We push the boundaries and we really submerge ourselves, literally, in, in unknown worlds to see what we discovered, and the discovery was, was brilliant. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon. In today's episode, we're visiting a place that's synonymous with creatures found nowhere else on Earth, Madagascar. If you want to see animals like lemurs in the wild, you'll have to visit Madagascar because it's the only place where they live. In this episode, we'll hear from a member of a daring expedition whose remarkable discoveries are reshaping what we know about this biodiversity hotspot. The island nation of Madagascar is located off the southeastern coast of Africa. It's the fourth largest island in the world, and it's home to a diversity of ecosystems, from lush rainforests to harsh deserts. My guest today is Dr. Fabio Amador, an archaeologist who was part of an expedition to a remote corner of this fascinating country. We landed in Madagascar, in the capital, and we waited there for the rest of the team and our luggage to arrive. My luggage got there seven days late. I remember. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and there's probably a lot of luggage, I'm guessing with all the gear a that lot, you've got. A lot of gear, with you. you know? And so we spent there, you know, like a week and then we moved to Tulear. We drove for a day. Then we took a few boats, small boats, and we got to a hotel, small hotel, what was on the ocean and the caves that we we're visiting were just south of there, south in the desert area, inland, about two hours from there. So we had a long, you know, it was a long trip. It was difficult to get to. It was difficult access. So where in Madagascar are you at this point? This is southwest Madagascar, Tulear to be exact. And this is a desert, we could say. And within that desert, there's this limestone surface. And through millions of years, throughout millions of years, the rain essentially has dissolved the surface limestone and created giant, giant caves, right? That not only go down, but also through the movement and dynamic movement of water, the ocean, there's also some horizontal caves. So can you describe what these sinkholes are like? What's the experience yeah. like if you're standing on the edge and looking down? What would we see? Yeah. Well, the you know my my first reaction is scary, right? Because there there are these holes in the ground. And on the bottom what you you could see at the surface is this cone and that's the debris cone that has collapsed over millions of years again and 
that debris cone, almost like a volcano, goes underneath. It's submerged, right? And it's filled with water, right? And you're looking down into it, this cave. It, sound, it sounds amazing. Yeah. So to explore it, you're going to need to do some scuba diving. So, so, you know, this is a team of people that's with you, right? So tell me who is on the team of people uh, that's going to help you to explore this cave. So we have a very good team composed of technical divers. You know, they guided the mission underwater. They had one diver dedicated only to camera while the others were exploring, mapping, taking down notes, uh, setting the line. Every time we dive a cavern, we have to set a line. So in the case that we get lost or, you know, we lose light, we can take ourselves up to safety. The first person is actually pulling the line and he also has a flashlight. So he's looking for, you know, the direction in which the tunnel or the cave is moving towards and he's pulling the line. In a certain intervals, the line is wrapped around the rock or stalactite, stalagmite. There's also a cookie that's placed there and it's not an edible cookie, but rather a plastic marker uh, like an arrowhead that tells you upon touching it that which way is out, right? And the reason we do this is because it's in those spaces where there's no light and there's zero light. If our lights fail or if we lose our notion of the direction, we could get out blind. You know, we can get out without seeing yeah, I mean, diving in caves is incredibly dangerous. Yes. I mean, not only do you have to keep track of where you are in the cave so you can get out, right? But, yeah, I mean, you're also scuba diving, so you have to keep track of how deep you are and like, how much air you have left, right? Yeah, and according to the depth and the time that we spend down there, we have to assume that we're going to have to make a stop to decompress if it's needed in order for us, again, to to be able to get out of there safely. Wow. I mean, that's that's quite an adventure. It, it takes a special kind of person to want to explore a, a place like that. I'm Scott Solomon. This is Wild World. And when we come back, we'll find out what brought Fabio to Madagascar and what he and his team hoped to learn through their exploration of its caves. If you want to see our wild world for yourself, one of the best ways is with Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. They've been exploring the most amazing places on the planet for more than 50 years. They have the most advanced fleet of expedition ships in the world, and their trips create unprecedented opportunities for guests. Visit expeditions.com to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Welcome back. You're listening to Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm joined by Dr. Fabio Amador, who's telling us about his expedition to Madagascar. So, Fabio, is this something that you grew up wanting to do? I mean, did you <laughs> always want to be a, a, a cave explorer and an archaeologist? No, you know, I started my, my, my career, I say, I started my life 
in, I went to art school before I studied archaeology. I'm an archaeologist. And so art has always been my passion, you know. But at some point in my early 20s, I discovered that living from art is very, very, very difficult, especially in New York City. And so I used to work at a restaurant in the village. I met this individual and he's come in and he was like, oh, Fabio, where are you from? You have an accent. And I was like, oh, from El Salvador. He was like, oh my God, El Salvador, the Maya culture. And I was like, what? You know, like, so he brought me these books that were written in 1843, but John Lloyd Stevens and Catherine Wood, and they were exploring, imagine back then they were rediscovering the Maya culture in the jungle, right? So Stevens, a wonderful writer, you know, he created all these interpretations of what the ruins meant in their glyphs. But Catherwood was an architect trained with Camara Lucida and Camara Oscura, which were very early technologies for capturing our world. And my mind exploded and I realized that I wanted to become an artist for expeditions. Yeah, in those early days of exploration, having a skilled artist was essential. And, and those techniques you described were some of the first steps toward modern photography. Yeah. And so having the ability to really document what the explorers were seeing was was really huge, right? Exactly. So, okay, so once you discovered this interest in documenting expeditions, what did you do next? It motivated me to start studying archaeology, and I went back to El Salvador, I became a professor of archaeology, and I did tons of research. My dissertation took place in Mexico where there are sinkholes, right? But the moment that I, when I was conducting survey, when I reached that, the Karsik sinkhole, Oyo uh, Negros or cenotes that we call them, I, that's where I stopped. Cause I looked down and it looked scary and dark and I don't, <laughs> I don't want to go down there. Yeah, no kidding. And then by reading more books and articles and I started thinking about how people have used these spaces in in the past these sites have been manipulated by animals in mankind for a very very long time and the very notion that the water levels were a lot lot lower and therefore that provided me kind of the impetus again to search for clues as to what they were doing, how they were modifying the space in those caves. They were their homes, you know, they were there for shelter, protection, but also access to water. So when I thought about the new types of evidence that we could discover uh, in these spaces, then that's when I started learning how to dive and all that. So you have this background as an artist. And then you went back to school to become an archaeologist. So how did these two interests of yours, art and archaeology, come together in your career? And how do they inform the work that you do? Yeah, I discovered the image as, you know, and the camera as being the most powerful tools because we are perhaps the only species that use imagery or artifacts, at least we shape the world according to how we value through our visual realm. So imaging became very central. And so when I started doing that, I realized that not all scientists are really focused on taking pictures or using that imagery to tell their stories. 
So you succeeded in becoming an artist that documents expeditions, right? You got a job where you could combine your training in archaeology with your photography and technology skills. Exactly. I was very fortunate to have had a job with National Geographic as a program officer for a brand new program called the NGS Weight Grants Program, which permitted me not only to search for talent, but also to look for new approaches to understanding our world. And so I was able to fly to different parts uh, of the world, follow scientists, and document their process. National Geographic is really outstanding in using that imagery to tell their stories. And so I convinced my boss <laughs> to let me go to different expeditions. And in return, what I would do is I would provide the scientists with different technologies, visualization technologies that they could use in order to produce whatever data they wanted, analyze data. So it really became a wonderful way to talk about science in an exciting way. So tell me a little about some of this imaging technology that you used in Madagascar. This was 2013. Drones were beginning to emerge as a very commercial product. So it was easy to get a camera up in the air. Underwater photography was really in, in its best days and there were very good lighting systems. So I incorporated many different tools that were used around the world. And even, you know, when you think of how do we see Mars, right? And we know that the rovers have these wonderful cameras. And that panoramic image that we're able to see, sometimes it's spherical, it is the same exact thing that I'm using underwater. Wow. So you're using the same technology in underwater caves in Madagascar as NASA is using to explore the surface of Mars. That I mean, that is just so cool. Okay, so... So what was the goal of the Madagascar expedition and how did this technology help you to achieve it? This wonderful expedition to Madagascar came about as a result of providing a grant to Alfie Rosenberger, who's a brilliant scientist, who's very curious to understand what was in the depth of those karstic sinkholes, you know, these caves, these flooded caves. And, and that's how we started. We provided him with a grant, and then we provided him with some visualization tools that allow him to come up not only with data, but also provide some, I would say, hypotheses of what was occurring 5,000 years ago. Because we have to explain the extinction of all these primates of all these animals. And apparently they occurred at one time, you know, it was a one period thing. Uh, so what was it? You know, there's, well, that, that was one of the main, the main questions that Alfie Rosenberger wanted to address. Okay. So exploring the sinkhole could give you like a window into the past to, to help you to understand what lived in Madagascar 5,000 years ago and perhaps provide some insight into what caused the extinction of so many animals. Right. That's fascinating. Okay, so so you're exploring this sinkhole, this underwater cave in this remote corner of Madagascar, and you've got this incredible technology to help you document it. So what did you find? So there's different parts of the cave that are just 
covered, littered with all these fossils. We have giant lemurs, uh, crocodiles, giant birds, uh, you know, all these beautiful primates. Wow. I mean, that must have been amazing to see. But So how did the imaging technology help you to, to document all these fossils? We came across this beautiful, beautiful specimen. It was a skull of a crocodile, this enormous skull. And, you know, with a few images going around, I mean, I remember it took like five minutes perhaps to just take pictures of it. That same evening, a few hours later, we were able to process it in a 3D model, put it in a PDF, send it to London to a specialist who could identify the species. And within an hour, we knew it was a buai, a crocodile from the Nile that probably went extinct 5,000 years ago. Wow. I mean, you know, wow. this is... This is insane. In an hour, you're able to do that. I mean, yeah. in in times past, I mean, that could have taken you know months to months get that kind years. of information. Yeah, many of the skull fragments that we were able to recover, they all have some sort of puncture marks in the occipital part of the skull, and there is no other animal that was using a tool, or at least that we know of, that was using some tool to actually make a kill uh, puncture in the back of the brain or the back of the skull. And so this was a formality, you know, in, in order to process their meat or process their, you know, or kill them. So, I mean, it's it's not in all cases because we haven't seen all the evidence. You know, we just have a sample, but the sample from last that uh, the last thing that Alfie Rosenberger was able to publish, it did point towards that direction that it was modern man in the techniques for as scavengers and and also as you know having different animals to survive from that they were slaughtering all these giant lemurs and other animals. Yeah. Mm. So the marks on the skulls suggested people had killed them or at least eaten them after the animals had died. Yes. And these are very specific. You know, there, I mean, there's a very clear uh, line of evidence that when you look at the marks, the types of marks can only be done by a certain type of tool. And those tools were created by men. And therefore, the tool mark, it's indicative that someone was, you know, butchering or killing. And, you know, it's not only marks on the back of the skull, but we also recovered a lot of long bones from giant lemurs that also had cut marks. You know, when they were, I suppose, separating the muscle in the cartilage from the bone itself. And it kind of makes sense, right, that there was a place that was specific not only for catching these animals, but also for processing them. And the reason why I say this is because if you're in a desert area, the sinkhole that we're talking about, it's the only access to fresh water. So everything has to come down to get water, otherwise you're dead. And so the only way to access this fresh water for survival is through these sinkholes. So 5,000 years ago, I would imagine that the level of the water was a lot lower in these karstic sinkholes. So animals would naturally go down there. And that's where they were butchered. That's where they were killed and butchered. I mean, that makes sense, you know. 
Interesting. So the specimens that you were discovering that have these this evidence of having tool use, I mean, this is really pointing towards humans as being responsible for the extinction of the giant lemurs and, and other species that once lived in Madagascar. That's, that's fascinating. You're listening to Wild World. I'm joined by Dr. Fabio Amador, an archaeologist and cave explorer whose work in Madagascar is revealing new insights into the history of this island. Coming up, we'll learn about how these discoveries have the potential to transform the lives of the people of Madagascar. The Rice University Traveling Owls program offers exciting intellectual itineraries to destinations around the globe. Traveling Owls trips serve as a catalyst for lifelong learning and strengthen bonds between Rice University alumni and friends. You don't have to be a Rice alum to participate in Traveling Owls programs. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls to see a list of upcoming trips. Welcome back. I'm Scott Solomon. I'm talking with Dr. Fabio Amador. So Fabio, we've been talking about these incredible caves in Madagascar that are filled with with water. Um, And now we know that they're also filled with with fossils of extinct animals. Uh, So I'm wondering, what is the significance of these caves to the local Malagasy people? It's incredible that we started out on a hunt for fossils, you know, and we ended up being more impacted by the condition of that we found some of the people there. How so? What I know is that there were many kids um, living in poor situations, you know, with 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 an abundance of sun because we're in the desert but very little water. And that was noticeable, very little water. And I couldn't understand that because, you know, we were exploring the largest containers of water in the world. I mean, you know, these systems go on for miles and miles underground and they contain large amounts of water. That water will suffice them for the next 500 years. You know, I mean, there's so much water down there and it's beautiful. It's fresh. It's clean. It's, you know, it's been filtered through the limestone for millions of years and it's there. It's the most important resource, you know, so yet the people did not have any crops, you know, they have, they weren't using it. And I, and I wondered, you know, and I've read in some places and, and spoken to some people that, that they're taboos. You know, it's it's not a good thing for someone to go into a cave because that's where the spirits reside or that's a sacred space that people don't necessarily access, have access to, to get water. And this is kind of something that motivated the team, specifically the diving team, in order to contact the local government and to... I believe the plan was to install a pump in order to get water from the cenotes or from the Karsuk sinkholes and to get that to these communities that were, you know, on the surface. Wow. 
So they d- the people didn't have an issue with using the water that's inside the caves. They just had an issue with going down into the cave to retrieve it. So if you can set up a way of pumping that water up out of the cave, it would it would really be a tremendous benefit to the community. Exactly. Yeah. They were very poor condition. You know, like I remember in our, and I always tell this story because it's heartbreaking that my last day when we were leaving the park, I rode in the back of a pickup and, you know, it was a long day. So we had eaten our lunch after the dive, after three dives, maybe we used to do a day. And I, we came to the edge of the park and, you know, the kids would surround us. And they would often say like, Gato, Gato, you know, give me a gift, give me a gift. They wanted cookies or something, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, we have no more cookies. Like, I don't know what to give you. And and they were like, they continued to, you know, like ask me. And I, I just wanted to show them, you know, that in the cooler, there was nothing, right? So I opened up the cooler and inside the cooler, there was a Ziploc bag with a banana peel in it and they ripped it out of my hand. What I'm saying is that it it's heartbreaking for me because it seemed like such a desperate situation that they didn't have enough food, you know, they didn't have enough supplies, but fundamentally they didn't have water. Mm. And it didn't make sense because we were swimming in the largest under you know underground containers of water. So I think that that's one of the, you know, again, Yes, it's heartbreaking condition, but another, I guess, impetus for us to connect this water or body of water with the local government. So installing a pump could bring water to those people so they could have crops and they could have, yeah. you know, a better life. So again, it's one of those moments where like, it's not science for science sake, but rather, you know, it really involves the community. It puts the community in the very essence of what we're doing and extracting whatever resources that would benefit them. You know, whether that's tourism in the future, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Through allowing people to come in and look at all these fossils or simply having water, you know, our very basic and fundamental resource. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon. In our final segment, we'll learn how technology is helping not only to explore Madagascar's caves, but also to share these discoveries with the world. I love to travel and experience new places. And I've had the great pleasure of joining several rice-traveling owls trips operated by Lindblad Expeditions. Each of these trips, from the Galapagos Islands to the Belize Barrier Reef, Baja California, and the Upper Amazon River, has been absolutely incredible. Lindblad Expeditions make nature and wildlife accessible to anyone. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls or expeditions.com to learn more and to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Welcome back. I'm Scott Solomon, and you're listening to Wild World. And I'm joined by Dr. Fabio Amador, an archaeologist, cave explorer, and artist. So, Fabio, 
what is it about caves, and, and especially these incredible water-filled caves in Madagascar, that, that causes you to continue to explore them? I mean, what draws you down into these mysterious and dangerous places? So, you know, my interests have developed over time. I certainly wasn't a water-bound archaeologist or artist at first, uh, but I've always been curious about time. I've always been curious about time. And in one of my trips that I did to El Salvador to visit my old aunt, who I lived with when I was a child, uh, we were talking about memories, you know, and, and she said, do you remember when you're like five, you used to have this box and then you, and then you, and then I remembered I would put in my toys and coins in this little box, right? Then I would go to the yard, I would make a hole and bury it. I would bury the box. I would hmm. go back and I remember I couldn't wait till the next day to open it up because hmm. I thought that things would have changed. You know, this is bizarre for, you know, behavior for a five-year-old kid. I mean, I, that was messed up even back then. But I, I guess the idea was that I, I was always very curious to understand how time changes things. When you say time changes things, what, what do you mean exactly? Obviously, overnight, nothing changed. When I opened up the box, my toys were still, you know, same toys. Mm -hmm. The coins were still the same. Nothing had really changed. But when I went into these caves in Mexico and Madagascar, I realized that these were time capsules. These are time capsules, you know, that, that we are still beginning to understand in terms of their age, their composition, the reasons why they're there, you know, the, the, the constant movement of, of the mantles and, you know, the deposition of all these fossils, the reasons why, I mean, it's wonderful, you know, so, so, I guess what I'm trying to say is that my curiosity as a five-year-old kid is still very much alive because I still see the world that way. You know, like I'm still exploring those dark spaces in order to see how time has managed to preserve some of the past that that we're still trying to understand. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. So, you know, I, I love how your background as both an artist and an archaeologist, gives you this perspective on, on caves as time capsules. And, and time capsules that you want to explore, but also to protect, right? Yeah. The, the new kind of method that we are using with all these visual tools is that we recognize the importance of the image, specifically underwater, because we can create 3D models from it. You know, we can tell a story from video. And more importantly, we never really touch the original. We never modify the surface. We never, you know, we're not manipulating the past, right? And and I think that's important. And, and we're seeing a lot of examples of this. And of course, you have to pull samples in order to be able to date, you know, uh, or to take measurements. So there is a sample that's taken, as scientists always do. But we were very, very careful in, you know, instituting this notion that that the new type of anthropology that we wanted to embody and employ is one that's not destructive, you know, one rather that captures the data, but does not manipulate the surface or the context in which it's in. 
So it seems like there were a lot of things that were new and exciting about this particular expedition. And one of them is the ability to make these highly detailed three-dimensional images, these maps of the cave that allow you and other researchers to study it in detail without even manipulating it, without damaging it, it, without, you know, having an impact on it. That's incredible. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is something that, that is, it's not necessarily known to everyone, you know, like most divers, I would say, you know, most divers, they find something underwater, they pick it up and, you know, they look at it, you know, we're curious, right? We want to know what it is. But now we don't even want to do that. You know, like we don't want to pick it up because that is modifying somehow the context. It's association in time and space to other things that could really tell us more about the human behavior that was occurring there. So understanding that, again, gave us even more power in the decision making of using or capturing images as the fundamental uh, baseline in the extraction of the specimen, you know, which destroys again, you know, all the, the, you know, the information of its context and the behavior. And so we were able to do that. Another thing that I did for fun, and this, this was simply for fun, but actually became a tool was I had GoPros. It was a very early model, but I had a stereo setup where I would take the two GoPros and, you know, capture video at the same time. What that gave me was, you know, first of all, it was similar to our vision. You know, it was two different scenes from the same perspective at a distance of what our eyes are. So that gave me stereo, you know, that provided stereo. So it gave me depth. So it's like two cameras are acting like two eyes. And so you're able to see the world through the cameras the way that our eyes see the world in 3D. And the beautiful thing about it, having two eyes is that we can, we can determine depth, you know, with this binocular vision. And so that gave me the capability of projecting the video to an audience that could experience the cave in three dimensions. And it was, it was wonderful because, you know, the way that this plays out is that, you know, I worked on it for such a long time and I created this beautiful video and then I had the opportunity to participate in a photo fest in Querétaro, Mexico. And I remember, you know, scrambling, trying to get those 3D glasses, you know, the old school, the blue and the red with the white frames. And I had this picture of a thousand kids sitting in the main plaza looking at the large 3D video and they were in the cave. You know, they were in the cave. Yeah. I mean, this is giving people who would never have the opportunity to go there the experience of being inside this cave and and exploring it just like you got to do. Yes. So again, you know, it's it's beautiful because we started off with a scientific project that began to see beyond the science. It began to see the communication part of it, the educational part of it, uh, the incorporating of locals into this very system. And I think that that was that was a really an important moment for me specifically. Yeah, I mean, this is something that would have been impossible even just a few years ago. Absolutely. Again, the power of the image. You know, we're still dealing with images, but yet people became, uh, you know, not everyone wanted to become a diver or a scientist, but they 
but they realize the beauty of our world and the complexity. And, and we hardly know anything about Madagascar. We hardly know anything about a lot of places. You know, imagine what's there. So the possibility of exploring the world, con to continue to explore the world and to be able to capture it and also to share it through platforms such as podcasts, such as you know, short films, whatever that may be, that's what motivates people to study, you know, to save these beautiful, pristine environments. Thanks for listening. For more information about Madagascar's flooded caves and some spectacular photos and videos, check out the Madagascar Cave Diving Association at www.madacaves.com. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Fabio Amador. You can find Wild World wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now or follow us on social media for notifications about new episodes and additional behind-the-scenes info about our guests and the wild places they work. Wild World is produced by 3Wire Creative. I'm Scott Solomon. Join me next time as we explore another part of our wild world. On the next episode of Wild World, we visit a place where the laws of nature still operate as if humans never existed. Its unique landscapes and wildlife have transformed the lives of generations of visitors. But our guest is one of the few who call it home 